Hello, let's join Fred Kuhn in another problem-solving interview. Welcome, everybody. We have a guest today I'm excited to have on the show. It's Emily Burmis. Emily is a CEO at Emily Burmis and Associates. Quite a background. Emily does executive leadership development, coaching, organizational executive assessment, new to role officer transitions, and on and on and on. She is a widely sought after coach to C-suite executives, trusted advisor to a number of senior management teams and boards of directors. Prior to her career in professional services, Emily was a resident faculty member at Indiana University, Purdue University for 12 years, and she was the honors faculty member and the academic administrator for the university's largest program. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. Now, we're going to talk today about talent management challenges. We're going to talk about what that means in today's corporation. You work with the C-level, you work with boards. So why don't you tell the audience, what are the biggest talent management challenges that you see today facing companies? Mm-hmm, certainly. Well, there, there are a myriad of challenges to be, to be certain. You can't open the Wall Street Journal without seeing examples of, of the many challenges that organizations face you know, with their leaders. But the one that I spend the most time working with is the talent shortage. So you know, we've known, we've been hearing about the, the war for talent for 15, 20 years. And it's here for people that uh, you know haven't been paying attention. But unfortunately, you know we've seen it coming. We knew it was coming, and not a lot has been done to mitigate that. And so I feel like today we're actually just really in the thick of that talent shortage, and and organizations are really struggling to figure out how to put the executive you know talent into the roles that they need in order to meet expectations of stakeholders and and investors. Let's take a quick backtrack here. What are the top couple of reasons? Do you think that we all of a sudden have this talent shortage and nobody planned for nobody did anything about it. What do you think is causal there? I'm not sure why no one's done much about it. You know, I think it's, I think many of us are prone to analyzing problems without necessarily, you know, coming up with innovative solutions. So, you know, I, I think a lot of organizations, frankly, have just been caught flat-footed about it. And the number one reason I think that this is occurring at this point, which, you know, again, we've seen coming for some time is, is really, you know, the demographic shift in the executive population. So, you know, if you think back 10 or 15 years ago, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, being in meetings with senior executive teams and, and they were all middle-aged to older men. And, <laughs> and I had one client say, wow, we're all old and we're all white men. This is probably a problem. And I thought, well, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a problem and I was probably 28 at the time so I stood out like a sore thumb but you know historically the the most senior leader positions have been held by baby boomers and you know what we know is that baby boomers have been and continue to retire at, at you know with quite a bit of velocity and and it's a very large generation obviously that's why we call them the baby boom right and what I'm not sure people realize is that behind baby boomers, we have Gen X, which you don't hear a lot about, mostly because it's a very small population. It's, it's about half the size of baby boomers, and yet it represents about 20 years of the population that are there supposedly to, you know, to be in line to take the position of the baby boomers, but there's half of them. 
And so what happens is if you have half the people competing for twice as many positions, there aren't enough bodies that are of a certain age to be, you know, ready for specific roles. So, you know, you have 20 years of population that are, you know, there aren't enough people that are executive ready. They're not ready to be a CEO. They're not ready to be a CFO. I mean, the, the, the Gen Xers are, but there aren't enough folks in that population to possibly fill the roles that are vacating. And so you have what I think of as essentially a, a huge vacuum of talent that represents about, you know, 20 years of our population. And so without those people that are executive ready to to fill, you know, the vast majority of those roles, we really have to start looking down to to millennials, which is a larger generation. It's not as big as baby boomers, but it, it about splits the difference between baby boomers and Gen X. But, you know, millennials relative to baby boomers are so much younger. So you've got, you know, a 30 year age gap between those generations. And so, you know, what we're seeing for a baby boomer who, you know, may have had a very successful career is that their career trajectory is very much sort of, you know, slow and steady wins the race, stay in a role for, you know, four to five years, go for that next promotion, four to five years, go for a promotion. And so they had time to mature in roles. They had time to prepare for the next role. They had time to get into the new role and find their sea legs and create results before they're expected to move on. And so, you know, their, their tenure and roles was, was much longer. And so the, the opportunities to stumble were, were fewer and further between. But if you look at Gen Xers who are, you know, again, with that vacuum metaphor, we're being sort of vacuumed up through the organizational funnel very quickly because there aren't enough of us. And so for Gen right. Xers, those roles come more quickly and the trage- career trajectory is much, much steeper. So they may stay in roles for, you know, two years, three years, boom, another role, two years, three years, boom, another role. I'm seeing Gen Xers get promoted almost to the point where it's every year to 18 months. Almost like I, I used to work with some folks from Walmart. It was almost like being a store manager in Walmart. You move every 18 months. Um, it's the mm-hmm. same kind of thing. You know, this yeah. leads to a question that, that I'm sure you're addressing with the, the Fortune 500 folks that you deal with. And that is, this has got to be the experience deficit. And there is an experience mm-hmm. deficit, decision mm-hmm. experience deficit. That's got to be costing companies money. How are you seeing companies address this experience deficit when you have a millennial with 30 years less experience than the guy who's a CEO and he's being, he or she is being moved up through the organization so rapidly? Is that costing the company in terms of good decision making? What's going on there, in your opinion? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great rich expression, actually. Deficit and de- decision deficit. That's definitely what we're seeing. So you have, you know, two generations of folks who've got the Gen X and the millennial who are taking roles, you know, bigger roles earlier in their careers. They've got less maturity. They've got less relative experience. They've had fewer cycles of learning, and they're and they're not staying in roles very long. So some of the, you know, mistakes in your decisions that you can recover from in role, they actually don't get that time. It's like they have to deliver results or, you know, they don't really have a choice. And so, you know, some of what we're seeing in terms of the, the stumble points are that they are at more risk for failure. So if they make that big decision and the decisions are all, are all, all over the place, either they onboard in a way that's, you know, not going to work for the charter or the culture, they might make an actual business, you know, decision that, that's errant and perhaps it costs the company more than they can afford, even if it, we're not talking big mistakes, right? <laughs> like something goes to an auditor and then we've got to, you know, work through the auditor protocol for, for three years, even if it's not like a big bad decision, just the the lack of maturity, the lack of experience, you know, can contribute to their to their you know prone to failure. 
And so what we know is actually even prior before, before the war for talent was here, you know, we were seeing that for an executive that comes into a role, if they fail to be successful in that role, and, you know, we can define that in a number of ways, but the most common are they get fired, they leave because they can't find a way to move their business agenda, their business agenda flails and fails to return on the expectations that were set in place when they took the role. What we know is that those folks cost about two times their annual salary. And so if you're looking, you know, with the bigger players, I mean, the, the salaries are all over the board, as you know, but let's be super conservative. Right. If they're right. making a half a million dollars a year, it's a million dollar cost for them to not be successful in that role. And so that's counting all the bad stuff that lands you on the front page. This is just sort of the cost of turnover, right, at this level. And so while we know that's historically been the number, right, 2x the salary, because right. the trajectories are getting faster, the points of failure are increasing, I would anticipate that that would go up, not down, which is you know, pretty scary. And, I, and it's part of what's really driving, I think, organizations to say, gee, we need to get ahead of this or at least try to play catch up with our peers. Well, that begs the last question I want to ask you. And, and I know we've just skipped the stone across the surface here, but what can organizations do? Are there any organizations out there that are doing it right? Are there ways to approach this to reduce that 2x or 2.5 or 3x risk in bad decision making because of lack of experience? What are organizations doing right to address those problems? Well, I wish I could say just pay them less, but of course it's the opposite of that right now because we're seeing, you know, with this, yes. with this competitive, the economy is really strong, right? So, you know, perhaps in the, in 08, 09, you could rely on, wow, lots of, lots of talent is on the market. So Correct. we can just, you know, go out to the market and there's lots of really talented people, you know, on the market that we can just recruit because they really want to work. That's not going to work right now. Everyone's employed. Everyone's fully employed. In fact, the top performers are so mobile right now because, you know, we know that if someone wants to take a bump in their income. If I stay in the same organization, I might get a, a small bump per year. But if I want to really get a big bump, like 15%, I just have to go to a competitor and I'll get that, right? Because everyone's throwing money right. at this problem. Unfortunately, it's not an opportunity to reduce what you pay people, pay people. You can't assume that there's people on the market that want these jobs. You know, so really uh, that the way that companies can hedge their bets, and it's, some of this is a slow game. So, you know, culture, I, I can't say it always wins now. You know, five years ago, I would have said you can win on culture. So you may not be the most competitive in terms of your compensation, but it, as long as you have a good culture that people like, like and enjoy and want to live in and feel like they're playing on a winning team and they can get emotionally behind your agenda, you know, that was actually pretty powerful. I'm seeing that weaken just a tad because, again, it is such a competitive labor market. It's the first time that was some of my clients that I would have said, and this is one, I can think of one, I won't name them, but I've had them for 20 years. They never had to worry about people leaving for more money because their culture was so strong. And I'm actually starting to see that not quite work 100% of the time, but it's still a better bet than having a bad culture and thinking somehow that's going to you know, help you in situations like this. So I think organizations that really think consciously about culture, creating a culture where people feel that they can succeed, that they're supported in their development. Development is a huge part of culture that I think organizations often overlook. People want classes and coaching and they want, you know, visibility opportunities and stretch. People really do want to have the opportunity to grow. So if you've got a culture where people can feel fulfilled and satisfied and positive about what they're contributing, that goes a long way at hedging off people that may just want to move for the, you know, for, for the next, you know, greater salary. So culture is a big piece. I think the other thing that organizations just seem to overlook, and it, it astounds me often the stories that I hear about the onboarding process. 
Yes. I hear stories of, you know, folks that are in these, you know, VP officer level positions, they're a big deal. They cost a bajillion dollars to get them in the role and they show up and they don't have a garbage can or a computer in their office and they have no, they don't even know who they're supposed to be dealing with on the first day. The onboarding (laughs) is just so messy and chaotic. And, you know, so something so simple, you know, like having someone that can spend time with them to just, you know, for that first week to just sort of help them figure out what's what, who's who, what's where, you know, make sure their office is well appointed and clean. I mean, little things like that that can just make, you know, a horrible first impression. And this poor person's thinking, what what did I do? <laughs> this company is not even like ready for me to be here. So I think, you know, uh, proper onboarding, you know, we've seen organizations and part of what we help them with is helping organizations figure out, you know, how do you communicate to this person what you really expect of them? What What's their charter really? Because it's, it's very seldom what they think it is when they take the position. Providing some sort of short-term coaching, helping them assimilate with their team. You know, this poor team that, you know, may have been through three failed leaders and now here's one one new hot shot to deal with and, and their team's right, going, oh, exactly. do, I, do I have to bond with this person? Do I have to get behind their agenda? So just these super right. small, simple things that are not expensive, they're not complicated, but they do so much to help that person not have buyer's remorse on taking that role to help them find their sea legs and feel comfortable making sure that they've got appointments set to have lunches with people that they need to meet these little thoughtful things honestly can go so far because these executives you think they're you know there's these senior folks they're in these big companies they're super big hotshots harvard mbas blah 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 they still have you know fears they still have trepidation they still you know, hope that they've made the right choice for them and their families. And you don't want their first impression to be, what have I done? And too often that's the case. I hear the same thing. Emily Burns, we have been talking with you excitedly about the issue of (laughs) the shortage of labor, talent management, and what organizations really need to be uh, prepared to, to address you and I discussed before this podcast, we're going to, we're going to get together and talk about new to transition, which is kind of a segue into what from this last part of our discussion. So Emily Burmes, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today on the U.S. at Work. Of course, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for visiting with us. We welcome your comments and suggestions and look forward to having you join us soon at Workplace Strategies.